Well, as we turn to uh, the end of the second part of our Apostles' Creed, the end of the Creed's teaching on the Son of God, Jesus Christ, um, we are looking at his exaltation. So we saw his humiliation, and now we turn to his exaltation in the resurrection and the ascension. And uh, the, the catechism continues its focus on this ascended state as it looks at how he sits at the right hand of God and comes again in glory to judge uh, the living and the dead. I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. And we see that the Apostle Paul incorporates the exaltation of Christ very much so into his proclamation of the gospel to the Ephesian church. The fact that Christ has ascended in glory and showers gifts down upon the church is is fundamental to the church's comfort and their understanding of God's care and provision for them in the midst of of a pagan uh, land. This is God's holy word, beginning in chapter 1 at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So amazing there in God's holy word that the, this glory, which is Christ's, is given also to us that we might have uh, that comfort of uh, being watched over and cared for and provided for uh, by him, protected by our Lord and Savior. We are going to turn now uh, to our catechism lesson, uh, Lord's Day 19, and uh, we'll read responsively. Why the next words and sits at the right hand of God. Christ ascended to heaven, there to show that he is head of his church, through whom the Father governs all things. How does this glory of Christ our head benefit us? First, through his Holy Spirit, he pours out gifts from heaven upon us, his members. Second, by his power, he defends us and preserves us from all enemies. How does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? In all distress and persecution, with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. 
thus far uh, our catechism lesson today. And uh, remember, the Apostles' Creed was introduced to us as a summary of the gospel. And we acknowledged at its beginning that it's organized into three parts. God the Father and our creation. God the Son and our redemption. God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification and preservation. And uh, we see here now that we're coming to the end of God the Son, the incarnate Lord uh, Jesus Christ. So our lesson this week covers the last two lines of this part of the creed. Uh, The session, or the sitting at the right hand of the Father of Christ, and the return to judge the living and the dead. And these two parts, along with the ascension, are a part of the exaltation of Christ. So we think broadly of the incarnation as Christ setting aside the Son of God, setting aside his heavenly glory, taking on human flesh, humbling himself to the point of death, obedient to the Father, and then in his victory over sin and death at the cross, uh, being risen and exalted back up uh, to heavenly glory. And I thought Ephesians was a good place to start this morning as we reflect on this. And as we've been thinking about the Ascension since Ascension Day in May, uh, last week's catechism lesson, it has uh, been much on our hearts, and we're also preaching through Ephesians. We'll return to Ephesians this fall for that second half of the epistle. And it's fascinating that both the first half of the epistle, 1 through 3, and the second half of the epistle begin with the Ascension of Christ. They begin by doing what Paul says in his companion letter to the Colossians, setting our minds on things that are above. Lifting our eyes to our Redeemer who is in glory. And what does Paul pray here? What does Paul pray? That God would give the church, so the believers in Ephesus, a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Paul wants the church to be well aware of the facts that he's going to present to them. He wants them to grow in knowledge. They're already saved. They already know Christ. Uh, The question here is what do they need to learn? How can they become more mature and rooted in their faith that they could withstand uh, the various uh, winds of doctrine that press against them? The first thing that he says is that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called. That you may know the hope to which you have been called. And it is so important when Paul understands that the Christian life is founded upon hope. When things get hard and difficult... We need to set our eyes on heaven. We need to set our eyes on our heavenly hope. Second, he prays, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? He wants us to know the riches. And he's, he's using here abundant, overflowing uh, language. He wants us to know that, that we are the, uh, the billionaires of the spiritual world. <laughs> we have infinite supply. We have all we need. And our heavenly glory in Christ strengthens us to endure suffering here on earth. Uh, Remember, he's going to close this epistle. This whole epistle would be read in one sitting. He's going to close this epistle talking about spiritual warfare. Right? Are you equipped with the Spirit to do battle? And we are equipped and reminded that we should be confident of God's great abundance and kindness uh, to us. And the third, and what I really want to focus on here in Ephesians 1, is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards those of us who believe. I believe that what Paul is saying here is, you need to understand that your faith, your repentance, is itself a supernatural miracle. It is no less 
than the miracle which rose a dead man from a tomb to life and now to heavenly glory. It is the miracle of God's power of resurrection that he has worked into you. That you may know, come to know your sins, repent, turn to Christ in faith. I'm always struck how Paul emphasizes the greatness of God's power. And how it's necessary for the working of faith in us. It's God's power displayed toward believers in their belief. It's the same power. And this power has put Christ in this glorious position far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Now, Paul clearly correlates being seated right hand at the right hand of God the Father. If we just ask ourselves in the catechism, in the creed, what does this mean? He correlates it with having all authority. He correlates it with a position of status and power. Christ is in complete control. And brothers and sisters, what a great comfort we have. Christ is on the throne. (laughs) You ever talk to a believer uh, going through a difficult season in life, dealing with a death in the family, wondering what God's will is, what the future is? Christ is on the throne. It's a great place for us to rest and draw comfort from. It is, you recall, the very foundation of the church's gospel mission, the Great Commission. That Christ proclaimed. Remember, his last words. He's leaving his dear friends, his apostles. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. Go. Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And I am with you, behold, always to the end of the age. So Christ gives this mandate to his church, to us, who are saints in Christ, to teach, to disciple, to baptize. And how can we do this work that's so far beyond our capacity, our power? This work to to grow and build and invite new people to saving faith. Remember, it's a supernatural miracle. We can only do this work because Christ's authority to do this work is given to his church. We go forth in gospel ministry in confidence that the one who has commissioned and sent us has all authority in heaven, on earth. Christ is on the throne. Brothers and sisters, in the last couple of years, we've had a great uh, financial crisis in this church. We've faced very large deficits, approaching 30, 40 percent of our overall budget. And Christ, in this last year has been on the throne. Uh, one of my friends, Paul Murphy, a minister in our classes. Uh, when he faces financial challenges or challenges in the life of missions and the work of the church, always goes back to that psalm, and I don't have the reference, but the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God can provide abundantly, not just spiritually, materially for his people. And so we rejoice in the Lord's provision. We have seen it. We have tasted it. And it's, it's power and authority in this age and in the age to come. And we forget both of those, right? It's not just like, we're going to end up in heaven and everything's going to be okay. No, everything's going to be okay right here, right now. It doesn't mean smooth sailing. It doesn't mean no trials. It doesn't mean no failures and struggles. But everything is going to be okay here and now, but also in the age to come. He will preserve and protect us in the face of the very gates of hell. The church will not fall. He puts all things under his feet. The result of seating Jesus at the right hand of the Father in glory in heaven is that all things are under his feet. And that includes you and I. 
I, I recall uh, many, many years ago when I was in college, uh, some college ministry uh, used to use a short rubric for Christianity. It wasn't entirely theologically accurate, but one of the steps it said is, you know, you have to put Christ on the throne in your life. Brothers and sisters, we don't put Christ on the throne. Christ is on the throne. And that's a great comfort to us. That's a great comfort to us. He's given us as head over all things to the church. And here is that fascinating relationship between Christ's glory and our glory in Christ. Remember in Colossians, again, in the parallel conversation, Paul says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. In union with our head, Jesus Christ, we have all of his glory. This isn't a way of of fanning our own ego or pride, right? It's all derivative, every last ounce of it. The glory of the church is the glory of its head. The glory of the church is the glory of the risen and ascended triumphant Christ. And this is exactly what the catechism is getting at in question 50, if you will uh, recall. He says, Christ ascended to heaven there to show that he is head of his church through whom the Father governs all things. The Father governs all things through Christ who is the head of the church. All things. Now, this can be a source of confusion for believers and for Christians in the church. We should not take this to mean that the church is the instrument through which Christ governs all things. The church uh, doesn't necessarily, you know, wage war on earth. The church doesn't set the laws of the territories and the lands in which it comes to exist. The church doesn't exercise civil authority. The church doesn't exercise, for instance, capital punishment. Uh, I think it's very clear that in the New Testament, the power of the sword to execute sinners is taken away. The state still has the power of the sword, and that's for the state to decide how to use. But the church may not kill anyone. The, the highest penalty in the church courts is excommunication. It's, it's spiritual acknowledgement of authority. And so Christ governs all nations through the magistrates, through our legislature, Ukraine's legislature, Russia's legislature, South Africa's legislature, England's parliament. Christ is governing and ruling all of those political mechanisms. But he's also ruling and reigning in our church. Colossians 1 says Christ is preeminent in everything. And what that really means on a day-to-day basis is that every single president and prime minister and parliamentarian and legislator will stand before the judgment seat of God for how he or she has behaved. Every mom or dad Every school teacher, every student, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In John chapter 5, Jesus tells of how the Father has given him authority to judge. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now why? It's an interesting question, isn't it? God had all authority. Why did he give it to the second person, the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ? He did so, Jesus continues, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. In other words, the Father has given all of his authority to the incarnate Son, so that the Father may still get glory, but now the Son does as well. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. With the sending of Christ into the world to save sinners, saving faith became exclusive. 
The only way to salvation is in the name of Jesus Christ. And the question is why? The question is why? I think the resurrection of Christ has put in motion this this great triumphal march, but it is the rise and the ascension of man, of the God-man to the right hand of the Father. We now have, for the first time since those few moments, I don't know how long it lasted before the fall in the garden, when things were going pretty well. Uh, Text doesn't seem to point to a passage of much time. But we now have, again, God's creature, his representative here on earth, a man, a human being, sitting in a position of power and authority that he should have always possessed. Christ, as the second Adam, has restored the glory and honor that was supposed to be given to the first Adam, should he have been obedient and faithful. And this is what Paul is talking about when he's talking about the resurrection and ascension in 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, so that first Adam brought death. That was not the way it was supposed to be. By a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. In other words, Jesus in his human power, in his humanity, has brought resurrection life. By his human obedience as the second Adam. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, each in its own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, that's his coming in glory, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Christ is ruling and reigning, and he must reign. Now, death is still out there. The rebellion hasn't been totally put down yet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he's accepted who, uh, he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself, the incarnate Son himself, will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. The climax of human history of, of the cosmos is man made in God's image. The God-man, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, bringing all things into order before the Father. And in this connection, we might think of the second benefit presented here in uh, question 51. The glory of Christ our head benefits us because he is powerful to defend us and preserve us from all enemies. Even death. Even death. I think we perhaps too easily forget in our current state that Christ is all-powerful now. He's not handcuffed. He's not uh, back in his corner. He is in charge. Christ is the one who is on the throne. And it is easy for us to fall back onto our own stratagems, our own plans, and not trust the spiritual weapons he has put at our disposal for victory and perseverance. The belt of truth, the breastplate, it's a hard word to say, breastplate, the breastplate of righteousness. Shoes. For our feet are the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, salvation is a helmet, the word of God is the sword of the spirit. Christ is ruling and reigning, he is the general, he is the imperator, the commander in chief. We are his uh, church militant, 
We are his troops here on earth, not in a physical contest, but in a spiritual one. And we have righteousness, truth, peace, gospel, salvation. We have these things at our disposal. And again, thinking of the unity of Ephesians, this is the first benefit of Christ's glory is is him showering these gifts on the church. He gave gifts to men. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Back to Paul's opening prayer in chapter 1, right? So we might grow in knowledge and wisdom. So we might grow more mature, he says, to equip us for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ. To be unified in our faith, to have the knowledge of the Son of God, mature manhood, to to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, to withstand every wind of doctrine. We are spiritually in a state of warfare until we join our head in glory. And the church is the place where Christ preserves and protects and shelters us and defends us. Kevin DeYoung, in his commentary on the Catechism, the Good News, we almost forgot... Uh, talks about Hebrews chapter 1 on, regarding the session, the seating of the Son. And Hebrews 1, right at the beginning of, of that wonderful book, which, remember that book talks about the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That he has completed the work of salvation. Hebrews chapter 1 says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. And DeYoung points us to the fact that the city, the posture of Christ, reminds us of his completed work. It is finished. He talks about a mom. We have a few here this morning. The mom, at the end of a long day, puts the kid down and just wants to sit and know that everything is done. A moment of rest and peace. Christ has entered his heavenly rest, his eternal rest. We get little tiny glimmers of it here on earth. But in Christ, it's ours every day, all day. The catechism will teach us that the the fourth commandment about the Lord's Day tells us that we need to daily seek to enter into our heavenly rest. Daily confess and remember that he's seated. He is seated at the right hand of glory. And that the greatest gift that he showers upon us is the purification of our sins. We can't remove the curse promise of eternal life in John chapter 10. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them from my hand. That's his power and authority. No one. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one's able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. And this Uh, in a sense, brings us to the judgment. And this final question, how does Christ return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? And I really love what the Protestant Reformation has to say about Judgment Day. And I really find it strikingly in contrast to what I grew up with um, as a Roman Catholic in my early youth, and even as a high schooler and a college student in in a broad evangelical sort of American Christian church. I think what the catechism says is really distinctive and different than what we tend to think and say about the judgment today. And so we should listen here closely. And the answer we read this morning is in all distress and persecution with uplifted head, 
I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse for me. Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. One of the hallmarks of the Reformation is on display here, the assurance of our salvation. And one of the hallmarks of our catechism, the comfort we have in Christ Jesus. The medieval church emphasized the uncertainty of our salvation. They thought the way you get people to do good works, to be active in the church, to serve, is is to threaten them. If you don't do enough, you might not go so well. Things might not go so well with you on the day of judgment. Instead of comfort, there was a heavy emphasis on discomfort. And brothers and sisters, I met that in the evangelical church growing up. The, The 70s and 80s movies dating myself, Thief in the Night, about the return of Christ and the rapture really emphasized fear. Am I doing enough to share the gospel? Because Jesus can come back any day and I might not be raptured. Or if I am raptured, my friends might not be raptured. And that's scary. It is natural, even outside the church, when you talk about judgment day to the world, to fear the last judgment. This is a, a rational, human, worldly reaction. We all know there's a holy God in heaven. And we know that he's coming to judge the earth. But here the catechism doesn't miss an opportunity to teach us the precious doctrine of assurance. And it's based on the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place. He has removed the whole curse from me. There's nothing left. The legal principle of of double jeopardy applies. You can't be tried tried twice for the same crime. Jesus has paid the price. Galatians chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who who is hanged on a tree. De Young also reminds us of another reason that we don't look forward to the judgment of Christ as eagerly, as optimistically, as confidently as we should. And part of that is, is the ease and comfort of the church in America. We assume the church should have a place of privilege in the world. We assume that Christians should be regarded and respected and maybe elevated to high places of government. We have a a very high view of the church. We have not suffered as many Christians have through the ages. And the churches of the Reformation suffered bitterly. That's why we begin, notice this note, in all distress and persecution. That could be personal distress. It could be political persecution. I confidently await with uplifted head. And I never really knew where that that line, uplifted head, came from. But it's from Luke's gospel. Uh, The catechism had scripture references in it. And it's mostly biblical teaching just collected for us. And Jesus is talking about judgment day in, in Luke 21. He says, there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations. In perplexity because of the roaring of the sea, that's chaos, and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. I don't know if you ever listen to political talk radio. That's sort of what it sounds like. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, Jesus says, straighten up and raise your heads. Because your redemption is drawing near. In the last days, the church of Jesus Christ stands out 
because of its peace and confidence that Christ is on the throne and is coming to redeem and complete and deliver our salvation. I don't know about you, so the, the, the arc of my life, the last 51 years or so, started in the early 1970s, Cold War, shows on TV about nuclear destruction, uh, drills, you know, getting in from radiation fallout. So we start with the threat of Cold War and the evil empire and this great geopolitical battle. And then we have the end of history in the early 1990s with the fall of the Soviet Union. And we're going to reap this tremendous peace dividend. There's about a decade of that. And then there's terrorist attacks and war. And then there are failed states and a sort of chaotic earth. And I'm not, I'm not an expert in geopolitics. But now we have a war in Europe again. And there's a nuclear armed uh, Russia invading Ukraine. It's kind of back where we started. <laughs> For me, anyway. And how does the Church of Jesus Christ weather all this chaos? There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of uncertainty. American politics is all over the map. A great realigning. The theme of the New Testament, when it thinks about the return of Christ, is not fear and doubt or shame or worry. It's confidence. We wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies, Paul says. We are waiting for our blessed hope, Titus 2, for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in 2 Thessalonians, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you, relief to those who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Brothers and sisters, let's lift our heads. Let's have peace. Let's apply this lesson in the world today, coming presidential election cycle. Our king's on the throne. We can have peace and comfort and assurance in Christ. Let us pray. Merciful God and Father, set our eyes and our hearts on heaven, on your heavenly glory. As we wade through the muck, as we make our way, our pilgrimage through the trials of this age, set our eyes and hearts and our hope on the age to come, where we know we will possess the fullness. All your promises will be yes and amen in Christ. Send forth your Holy Spirit today through your word to grant this comfort, the the feeling, the experience of this comfort and joy in our hearts. Give us peace and protect your church as we move forward in confidence, proclaiming the gospel of grace and peace from Christ's throne, that he has given us the power and authority, the commission to share with the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.